Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm joined by Alex Conrad, Senior Associate Editor at Forbes. In his role, he's interviewed tech titans like Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz, and Zoom CEO Eric Yuan. He also plays a pivotal role in Forbes lists like the Midas list, Cloud 100, and the 30 Under 30. This interview actually came about through a tweet I put out asking the community for recommendations for guests. I'm so glad that we could make it happen. We cover a lot in this episode. How tech journalism has changed and continues to change, the future of cloud software, pros and cons of our list culture society, and of course, how to build rapport and navigate challenging conversations. Expert tips from a journalist. We also discussed the products he loves. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on Product Hunt Radio today. I'm really excited to chat with you. It's pretty cool because I often ask on Twitter, you know, who would be the cool people that I can interview on the show? And one of the last few times I did that, your name came up, which is awesome. And now here we are. Uh, but for folks who aren't familiar with who you are, Alex, please tell us what you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um, I'm Alex Conrad. I'm an editor at Forbes magazine. I've been there since October 2012, so uh, getting close to seven years. And I am an editor on our technology team, uh, running our coverage of enterprise software and venture capital. So obviously, those can be pretty broad topics. And I don't even always stay within those topics. But an easy way to think of me is anchored by a couple lists I run, the Midas list of top venture capitalists in the world, the Cloud 100 list of the top private cloud companies in the world. And then I am also um, one of many folks at Forbes who works on the 30 Under 30 program. Amazing. So you've got a lot of cool projects under your belt, which is great. I feel like you're uniquely positioned to share insight on, you know, what's happening in the state of tech and like particularly the angles that the product hunt community care about. But before I dive a bit deeper into those things, I was curious about you and your career, really. I want to know how you got into tech journalism. And in the years that you worked at publications like Fortune and Forbes, you've seen tech journalism change. Yeah, it really has gone through a couple cycles, I think, since I started to probably pay close attention to this community, I want to say probably almost exactly 10 years ago. When I started out, I'd say we were still kind of emerging from the post-financial crisis consternation. I actually think if you look back, you know, that post-2009 period when I was in college was a really good one for new companies almost like out of the chaos, you know, came all these great startups where maybe people didn't want to go to banking, they weren't sure if sort of the traditional industries were welcoming to them. And they, you know, looked to do their own thing or join tech companies and then move on. So I actually think it was it was sort of a great flourishing moment. And I'm based on the East Coast, I've lived in New York most of my life. And so it was also a moment when some companies were really taking off like General Assembly, ZocDoc, WeWork. Um, so there was, you know, some ad tech companies the audience may not remember, but at the time were very buzzy. So it was just like an exciting moment to, to get into the space. I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And it seemed to me like technology was really going to just be increasingly important to our society and sort of a big growth driver for jobs, for young people, for innovation in the country. And, and it was something I wanted to watch closely and be a part of. That's pretty cool. It's interesting that you speak of the post-credit crunch, post-recession area as a, as a time of opportunity, certainly like, you know, on a macro level, thinking of the companies that came out of it. Because as someone that graduated in 2009 on a personal level, it actually feels like the opposite, not a time of opportunity, but rather a time where all the expectations we had around what we could do once we graduated were smashed because there were so few jobs. I mean, that was certainly the case here in the UK. I'm guessing it was mirrored over in the US as well. Totally. And and I want to, you know, to clarify the irony of startups, as I'm sure the audience probably knows well, is um, sometimes, you know, they're an overnight success 10 years later, right? <laughs> and sometimes, you know, things 
seem really crazy until they're obvious. And so I would say, I think emotionally, it was a hard time for all of us. But in hindsight, I, I do think that that uncertainty did create a lot of sort of interesting ideas and, and risk taking. Yes, definitely. It's so funny that you mentioned this idea of like a 10 year overnight success, because this is something that I definitely discuss in like tech circles and like founder circles. When you see the headlines sometimes, especially not in like specialist like tech news, but like more mainstream tech news, it's often portrayed, um, you know, with regards to like a success story that someone just, you know, became this unicorn overnight. And like what everyone knows really from like being in the trenches is that people have been iterating on idea like over and over and going through all these different cycles and probably had like lots of failures and lots of rejections from VCs, et cetera, before they actually get to that point. So it's quite cool to hear journalists acknowledging that that the overnight success thing is a bit of a misnomer. <laughs> well, I'm glad, glad to uh, clear, you know, clear up any misconceptions that journalists aren't paying attention to. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So um, I wanted to ask you a bit of a sticky question. I feel like being a journalist is kind of fun to have the tables turned a little bit. Often you're the person that gets to put others in the hot seat. So I wanted to have a stab at asking you something tough. I really want to know what your thoughts are on the role that journalists should play in relation to how tech affects the public. So for example, we're hearing a lot of stories around privacy, privacy breaches, data breaches. I know that you recently profiled the Zoom CEO, Eric Yuan. We love Zoom. We rely on it a lot here at Product Hunt. But of course, the news story broke you know, earlier to the time of us recording this about a vulnerability in their software. And so I'm just curious, what role do you see journalists playing in this kind of dicey space of like fear amongst the public and concerns the public have about how technology is impacting their lives? Totally. You know, I think journalists play a key role that sometimes gets lost in sort of the shoot the messenger uh, mindset, <laughs> where I, I think, you know, Let's take Zoom because it's a company that I know very well. I spent a lot of time with its management. And, you know, having come out of that and, and writing the feature story I did around the time of their IPO in April, you know, I was very impressed by Eric and his leadership. And I think um, it's a company with good values. And, you know, obviously I don't work there, but having talked to many people who do, I think it's a company that wants to do the right thing and by its users and by sort of, you know, security, privacy metrics. So to see bad news happen, I think, you know, it's a little bit like, oh, gosh, like, here's the company I just wrote this amazing, you know, positive, mostly profile about and they're having this bad news. On the other hand, you know, you look on Twitter, and Eric is there replying to tweets saying we take this seriously. I guarantee you the company is working around the clock to sort of figure out how this happened, how they can keep it from happening in the future. And um, we also saw reports that Apple might have, you know, patched the problem itself quietly, once it was apparent, you know, journalism can lead to that kind of good outcome. And I think we would all think to ourselves, okay, I'd rather that problem be fixed and fast than have no one know about it. So there is a situation where I think, you know, the journalism was very helpful and responsible. And I, I don't think the company is disputing it. I think, you know, you look at then the debate last week's controversy with Superhuman. And um, it was actually a blog post written by someone in the tech community questioning some of its practices in terms of privacy and tracking that set off a big debate. I think it's CEO uh, Rahul uh, Vora. He did an amazing job responding to the community and taking steps. And I do think that, you know, it's, it's only when journalists are writing something and the company thinks it's wrong or disputes it or chooses to deny it that we see sort of a negative potential consequence. Yeah, that's such a great point, actually. I know that lots of the people who will be listening to the podcast are founders at various stages of the journey. And I feel like there's something we can dig into a bit deeper there, which is inevitably something will go wrong. Something will impact your customers or the public in a way you most likely never intended to. 
in your view, you know, based on what you've seen happen at Superhuman and like responses at Zoom, what are the best ways that founders should respond when things go wrong? Yeah. So first I have to say to the founders listening, I totally understand that this is easier said than done. And I am not a founder, so I am not feeling those <laughs> yeah. emotions and I don't presume to. So I want to make that clear. You know, I'm not, I don't want to be perceived as just an armchair general uh, telling them what to do. But just from having met with hundreds of startups over the years and having close relationships now with many entrepreneurs, I do think that the instinct can be to turtle and sort of batten down the hatches, um, take a us versus the world mentality when something goes wrong. And I think you have to resist that inclination. Sure, you want to batten down the hatches to solve the problem. But I think in how you present to the community, I'm curious if you would agree, but in my mind, CEOs who and, and any founder who kind of owns an issue and really like puts themselves out there and engages in conversation like, look, this was a mistake. Here's how we're dealing with it. Or this is something that, frankly, we never even considered when we were building our software and now we need to fix it. But we totally get why people are upset. I can't really think of a situation where someone did that and it blew up in their face or it made the problem worse. I would agree. I would really agree. I'm thinking of times where I've been a consumer of a company and you know you get that dreaded email like, oh, sorry, <laughs> there's been a data breach. And I think just like you said, when they respond in a way which feels very honest and very human, I'm endeared to them because I can relate to that. I've made mistakes at work. I've sent emails that I probably shouldn't have sent or shared data that I probably wasn't meant to. And I think it's about taking ownership of that. Where people tend to be almost repulsed by people's reactions, leadership's reactions, is where there's just this full-blown like deniability or like avoidance of the issue. Because I think when people are directly impacted by an issue, when customers are directly impacted by an issue, users are directly impacted by an issue, to have leadership who you've sort of invested in try to diminish that can feel so problematic and like, you know, almost traumatic as well, I think. Totally. And, and I think um, another thing for the sort of builder community to think about is I firmly believe that we resonate more with people than with companies. We can also like love a product, but at the end of the day, are you more likely to go out of your way to help another person you know, or a company that sort of feels faceless? And so I think that if you look at Forbes, for example, we write about companies, but we write about people. You know, you read you read an article about a company in Forbes, whether it's a small startup or a big one like Zoom. And if you don't walk away with a real sense of like, here are the people who work there. This is what the founder or the CEO, this is what makes them tick. Then we didn't do a good job. And so I would say when you're communicating with your community, especially if something goes wrong, it's so important to kind of try to connect on that human level in some way, right? It's like, look, I screwed up. I'm owning it. I'm going to fix things. I feel like I respond so much better to someone saying that than a company being like, we may have had a problem. We can neither confirm nor deny, but you know, you may want to change your password. And you're like, great. That, you know, that doesn't feel good to me. <laughs> I agree. And it's funny as well, because I'm, that logic around being personal and being human works like both ways. It's not only, you know, the best practice in my view to do that when something goes wrong, but if you can be connected to your community as much as possible at every opportunity, particularly as leadership, you should do that. You should absolutely make the most of that. It's really inspiring and fun and exciting when I meet people in the real world who are huge fans of Product Hunt and they tell me about their Product Hunt story. You know, So they'll always say something like, oh, I first discovered Product Hunt in 2014 when I was still at you know, college or when I was building my first app and I remember sending Ryan Hoover an email and asking him for his feedback and he replied. And so many people, I, I mean, dozens and dozens of people have had these one-to-one -one interactions with the CEO of my company. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. And I do see some leaders really investing time in community in that way as well, which is really cool. But I think there are definitely still loads more who could. Yeah, I think, you know, if we look at Product Hunt, it was so much about people even early on, you know, obviously, Ryan and Eric are very active on social media. And I think they're well known in sort of the tech community, and have engaged with people and met with people and invested time in that. 
and you know Ryan continues to do so. But I think that also, if you think about just people sharing products they loved or talking, you know, in sort of the comments, like it was very much sort of this symposium or sharing mechanism that I think like added a human component and made people, you know, want to invest time in it. Yes, exactly. That's so true. Okay, so I'm going to put you in the hot seat again. This time I'm going to come on to the topic of lists. So as you said at the start of the podcast, you worked on lots of the most popular lists that we would associate with Forbes. The Midas list, uh, Cloud 100, and of course, 30 Under 30. I'm someone that, you know, always waits for like the new 30 Under 30 announcements to come up. It like dominates social media and you want to see if your friends have made it or anyone who you know has made it. And it's been an incredible way for people to bring attention to all the amazing things that they're working on, reach a new audience. And I know for many people who are in my personal network, also add some extra validation to work that they've been, you know, working really, really, really hard on, but just haven't quite kind of broken through to a level yet. So certainly like a lot of great positive things that come from lists. However, but, it's also really interesting. I knew there was a but. <laughs> exactly. But, the big but. It's also really interesting to see what happens on social media at an individual level and in communities to folks who don't make the list, right? Ultimately, there's like more hardworking people in the world than you can actually fit onto these things. So I kind of wanted to speak to you about like your feelings about some of the adverse elements of list culture. I feel like particularly with our generation, millennials and Gen Z, some people maybe get too wrapped up in trying to get on them, which then creates some yeah, negative, <laughs> negative experiences. First, let me preface this by saying I am a extremely competitive person. You know, I have to kind of work on that all the time, resisting that impulse to compare myself to people or my work to other work or read a great article and think, oh my gosh, I should have written that. You know, like it, it, it's, it, it is a natural impulse for me. But that said, how I feel about lists is you can't think of them as a zero sum or comparative thing. They, they celebrate and elevate some people, but that does not come at the expense of the people they don't. You know, like, like just because 30 people will make our venture capital list this fall, that is by no means saying they are the 30 best people in venture capital under 30. For starters, you can only make the list once. And so some very amazing people already made it and they won't be on there this year. And so someone who's new to the industry might miss that. Um, but secondly, you know, it is a little arbitrary. Uh, would you rather have an awesome 29-year-old or 30-year-old? Um, I don't think that really makes a difference. And also we're fallible. You know, we make mistakes. We rely a lot on the community to filter people to us, just like I am grateful that I was surfaced to you to be a guest on this podcast, you know, which I was a fan of, but I wouldn't have known how to raise my hand to try to be on this podcast. So I, I think it's the same thing with these lists. You know, it's it, people slip through the cracks, companies slip through the cracks. And all we can do as the makers is try to focus on the positive side. So if you make one of these lists, it's a great thing. We love to hear when 30 under 30 alumni have had their careers take off helped by the list. You know, again, I don't think a list will make or break someone's career. I would, you know, I would be horrified, but I've yet to hear anyone who said, you know, my career failed because I didn't make a list, you know? And, and I There's would, someone out there, I'm sure. But, agree, I'm but I'm sure there'd be other things going on. And, and similarly, I've, I've never met a startup that was like, we were going to go under and then we made a list or had an article written about us and it took us from death to life. You know, like I really think coverage and lists, all they can do is kind of amplify what you're doing. And if we focus on that part, I think it's, it's a great way for people to feel some recognition and credit and validation. And it's just, you know, it's painful, but we try to make the people who might feel excluded realize, you know, we could have been wrong. It's not necessarily about you. We're not saying you're not as valuable. And, you know, we might have made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really, really great for you to, to share that 
I just think it, it helps, you know, it really does help. Everything you say, I, I completely agree with. There are a lot of people I follow on social media or who are active in the product hunt community who have goals on their bios, Twitter bios or product hunt profiles, like I'm going to make, you know, Forbes 30 under 30. And I think it's amazing that people aspire to this and have that ambition to achieve greatness in what is ultimately quite a short period of time. Um, you know, 30 years old is relatively young, especially if you look at like most successful venture back founders, they're like a lot older, the ones that IPO and go public. But as you say, it is certainly not a deal breaker and it shouldn't be, um, yeah, the be all and end all. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And w- one more thought there, you know, I, I turned 30 uh, in January, so I am, I am never going to make our 30 under 30 list and my <laughs> life goes on. And, uh, you know, a lot of my friends have just turned 30 or are turning 30, you know, the people from my year of university and, you know, a few of them, like I tried to stay at arm's length, but a few of them have made the list and it was so joyous for me to see that others never applied, never had interest or didn't make it. And they are just as smart and awesome, even within the entrepreneurial community. Um, it could be anything like they just hadn't quite raised any money yet, or their product hadn't launched yet, or who knows why, you know, the judges are also different every year. And and so I would just say, you know, there's literally no difference between someone who makes it or not, except that we just have this chance as a community to applaud the people who do and, and celebrate them and, and, and just try to like focus on that and not what that means for, for everyone else. So yeah, definitely. Um, that's such a great point. Thank you again. And it is such a fun day when the lists come out. Like, I just love like the way people respond on social and like share their stories and like amplify the message. And certainly for me, the overall overall feeling is just like oh, we're living in a pretty good world. Like sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the negativity, but then you see those lists and you're like, yeah, there are good people out there doing good stuff. Well, and the funny cool. thing, the funny thing is, you know, if you look at Twitter, especially tech Twitter, you might not always have the sense that the media or journalists like technology or or like entrepreneurship all i can tell you is that forbes we do and we try to celebrate the entrepreneur you know we we like business we like growth in in our in jobs in you know our industries and when technology is done well that's what it does i think it you know it creates jobs it creates opportunity And so a moment like the 30 under 30 list coming out is a great time for us to say, actually, we do think these are awesome people. We do think they're trying to change the world. They're not the only ones, but let's, you know, let's celebrate them while they're doing it. Yes, exactly. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So I know that many of our listeners spend most of their day in Gmail and Google Calendar and Drive. Pretty typical stuff. And typically, you're managing relationships with anyone from freelancers to clients to investors to vendors to partners to customers. You get the idea. It's a lot. But what if there's a way to remember every name instantly, find every email thread, even from weeks ago, and never forget to follow up on anything again? Because let's face it, who has the time for that? That's what Copper's for. It's your designated relationship manager, built to look and feel like the G Suite apps you know and love. Actually, it's recommended for G Suite by Google Cloud. Plus, it lets every team, sales, marketing, customer success, and even product, talk to each other and share updates all in one place. If that doesn't sound like a CRM, you're right. Copper isn't your average CRM. See for yourself. Check out copper.com slash product hunt to try a 14-day free trial. So I wanted to um, switch gears a little bit and talk about all the incredible people you have had a chance to profile. I'm really jealous because <laughs> a lot of them are people who uh, I admire and I just kind of think, gosh, to like have five minutes with them would be so cool. I feel like you can gain knowledge through osmosis sometimes just by being in the presence of really accomplished individuals. To name a few folks like uh, Satya Nadella, Mark Benioff. I just wonder, spending time with all of these you know, tech CEOs, accomplished leaders, would you say you've been able to identify any trends or any themes that unite the individuals you meet at that level? Wow, that's a tough question. 
which is something that is great for anyone listening to say if they're stalling when someone asks them something <laughs> <laughs> while they figure out what to say. To, to give my best attempt, I, I think that one of the funny things about meeting so many just incredibly successful and smart people is you do kind of start to sense a pattern and then your pattern gets blown up in your face and you realize that everyone is really different. Satya wow. Nadella, I think, is reminds me almost of a college professor when you talk to him. He he was name dropping Pulitzer Prize winners or prize winning economists and you know theories about macroeconomics while talking about, you know, privacy and technology trends. And I could, I felt like I could barely keep up, you know, and, and, and that was intellectually, I was just overwhelmed. You know, I think even though I tried to prepare myself with someone like Mark Benioff, he really connects on a human level. He knows so many interesting people in so many different industries. And he kind of is this incredibly shrewd judge of people behind this kind of bombastic, uh, larger-than-life personality. And so Mark will take a very different approach when you meet with him. He won't name-drop books, but he may name-drop, you know, meeting the head of the World Bank or the Dalai Lama or who knows, you know. And and I, I think it's coming from a good place. It can be a little overwhelming. And, and then, you know, you talk to people like Eric at Zoom, and he's – heads down, doesn't really care about anything except his product, watches basketball because his sons play basketball. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for, for Eric, like outside of family and making a better product, he has no interest really in meeting random people or mixing it up at Davos or something, you know? So, so I just think like every person is their own story. Um, I would say they all just are passionate about what they're building I don't think that you can be a great CEO like for a long period of time and not believe in what you're doing, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think there's something quite refreshing in, in hearing that there aren't any obvious patterns or rather that there's such a diversity of um, traits amongst all of these very accomplished people because that makes me feel like there is no like cookie cutter or template for becoming an incredibly successful CEO. You can be yourself and do it in your own way. Like you say, love the product, focus on that and still make it to the top. And I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of hate when I see, and I'm sure Forbes has published many, so I apologize. It's inevitable, but I, I feel a little pained when I see the articles saying, you know, the best CEOs all wake up at 4 a.m. and go swimming or they oh, you yeah. know, they fast all day. They have all these hacks that make their lives more productive. I really think everyone's different. You know, I probably work better at night than I do in the morning. I, I know there are a lot of people who work strange hours in the tech world. Um, and I wish that was more common in other industries, too, because I think we all are different and at the end of the day, it's what what helps us do the most, right? And and I think, you know, Michael Moritz and some famous people in the tech world do get up at like four in the morning and go swimming. Wow. Just because that works for them doesn't mean that, you know, the rest of us should feel like we have to do that. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because they really like strike a nerve with me when I see that, like, oh, wake up at 4 a.m. and your life will be like incredibly better. Like all billionaires, you know, do work on Saturdays and Sundays or something. And I, I'm, I'm just curious, like this is more just like a personal opinion thing. Like why do you think so many articles like that exist? That is a great question. Um, <laughs> again, but actually it's one that I love. So so I, I think that this kind of touches on two things. One is like the hustle porn culture we live in where – we sort of idolize people who seem to be making crazy sacrifices or, you know, doing something outlandish in pursuit of their goal. And then we sort of, we might fall for the trap that just because that's working for them, it's somehow better than what other people are doing or the way that we should all do it. You know, so like you could work seven days a week and it's great for you. But other people might do that. And I think all their work is going to be less productive and they're actually not going to have like a better result. So I think part of it is just sort of like we gravitate to these 
outliers because they they feel different and and we're trying to understand it. And then part of it is sort of this survivor bias where building a startup is really hard and we look back at the successes and we might try to sort of over analyze what are the takeaways or how can I copy that person to be successful myself. And I think that's something I grapple with when I do a profile is I do think there's a business lesson in every profile, but I think it might be a different lesson for different people. And I mean, I certainly have a couple in mind when I'm writing an article, but I, I don't think the goal of an article is to say everyone should be like Eric at Zoom or everyone should be like Mark Benioff. You know, it, it's kind of just like maybe they're doing something that resonates with a certain type of person. Yes, that's that's brilliant. Um, I, I really like your interpretation of why that is. Um, very similar thoughts um, were going through my mind. Um, I also think, I guess kind of related to what you've said, that as humans, we often are looking for a shortcut or like some kind of like quick fix or, well, not that waking up at 4am every day is a quick fix, but some kind of like silver bullet solution to get us from like where we are now to where we aspire to be. So reading an article like that appeals to that part of us where we're like, oh, that's what's been missing, right? Now I'm going to you know, commit to intermittent fasting or whatever. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and I think like that's like the whole idea of like hacking, you know, hacking the process, right? Like maybe impatience or just sort of a overwhelming desire to, to succeed. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, well, how do we do things faster? Like I want to get in better shape. And I was just before this texting with a friend who is really active in the fitness community being like, what can I do today? And he was like, actually, you should take it easy today. And I was like, I don't want to do that because I'm impatient and I want to get in better shape right away. You know, and it's hard <laughs> to hear, it's hard to hear like, okay, actually, this is just going to take you a really long time, you know? <laughs> yes, that's so true. Um, I can't remember where like I saw this point, but it was basically this idea of how we are in a bit of like an instant gratification culture. Like we have a lot of things on demand, thanks to the cloud, like movies on demand, songs on demand. You know, I can walk around with my phone in my pocket, open up Spotify, listen to the song that's in my head, like in an instant. And then we try to apply that same like speed of return to like things which it doesn't actually make sense to apply it to, like the example that you just shared. Yeah, very cool. Um, okay, so a big part of what we talk about in Product Hunt and particularly in our makers community. So ProductHunt.com slash makers is a space where all of us can share our goals, start discussions with each other, just connect with the global community to help us move forward with whatever we're working on, finding a job, a project, a startup we're trying to get off the ground. And we often have lots of conversations around improving our productivity, improving our skill set, just doing whatever we can to kind of like up our game, level up as founders, operators. So I thought it would be really great to talk to you about something that I feel everyone always wants to be better at, which is communication. So communication is basically your bread and butter. This is what you do. And I often hear people saying how um, they want to improve their communication skills, whether that's, you know, how to have better uh, conversations with their team, you know, thinking about difficult conversations, or even just sort of expressing what their product does or talking about their brand vision. So since this is what you do, I just wanted to get you to share tips. One for like building rapport with individuals, since you have to go and meet everyone from CEOs to individuals on the lists and, you know, establish a kind of connection with them. Share some tips about that. And then also share some tips about having effective conversations, getting the most out of them. So on the first side, um, I think it's important for people to be comfortable with their own personality, not try to be something that they don't feel comfortable being. For example, Aaron Levy is, I think, one of the best CEOs in the tech world at Twitter. And I think a lot of other CEOs are like, how do I be like him? And I don't mm. think that that's the right way for them to think because Aaron is just kind of doing what feels right to him. He didn't read some book on like how to communicate with the community via tweets. He just does. Right. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, 
it's hard to like fake this kind of thing. You just have to figure out what your medium is. And I do think that similarly, people, I think, try too hard to just focus on what they're living and breathing with their product or their company every day. And so I find that I can really connect with people or build a rapport fast when I first am connecting with them as humans. So so whether it's small talk with people before or after a meeting, or just sort of like asking a couple questions like, what's your biggest hobby? Or what's something that you've been thinking about that has nothing to do with your company? It's, it's really important, I think, to see how people see the world and, and what they're thinking about and, re- and understand that. It gives you a much richer understanding of what they're building or what they aspire to do. And so similarly, I'm a pretty open book. Um, I love it when I am in an interview or meeting and people turn the tables on me and ask me questions like that. I certainly think it's fair game and, and I don't get upset because I do think, you know, it's fair to also want to understand the person who's interviewing you or meeting with you. So maybe that's a bad thing for my efficiency because it means that I sometimes have really long first meeting, (laughs) (laughs) but, but it's fun. And, and it's one of my favorite things about the job to just kind of like have this snapshot into the mindset of so many different people. That's awesome. So you've told us about establishing that rapport and establishing that connection just kind of like recapping on what you said at the start, being yourself. Um, I think you're right. Like what I often see happening in discussions on our, on our platform in the makers forum is people saying like, yeah, I want to be more like X. I want to be more like Y. And I think you're right. Like sometimes, especially in, in something like communication, which is so important and is also extremely nuanced. Like, you know, when people say like only like a small percentage of communication is verbal because it's also about all the other things that are happening it's almost like you're setting yourself up to fail if you're trying to imitate somebody else. Um, instead, you should just be trying to focus, I guess, on what your goals are and how best you can communicate them. So that was really great to hear. I also think, um, but just one really quick follow-up there. I do yeah. think this goes back to our instant gratification culture we were talking about earlier, where it can be really frustrating to feel like no one hears you or you don't have a platform to you know engage with people. And so I think then people look at successes or people with really big microphones and try to like understand what they're doing and how they can be more like them. But I think if you look at the most popular people on Twitter or Product Hunt or AngelList, they're the most popular because they're successful and they're good at what they do. I don't think they're popular just because they're good tweeters or posters, right? Like Yes. So exactly. That part, you know, I think that part comes naturally when, you know, as you earn your credibility in your field. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. It's so true, actually. Like, what do you focus on or what do you prioritize? Like, maybe it's not a productive use of time to worry too much about how you're communicating about your product if you're not actually focusing on building your product or talking to users about your product, about how you can improve it. That's cool. And one, um, tip, one so yeah. tip, sorry, uh, for founders yeah, go. to try to really focus on, on this audience. When I meet with startups, one of the main things that I say over and over that hopefully everyone listening can, can take away is not all good companies and products have a good story. Not all good stories come from good companies or products. And sometimes, like that. <laughs> sometimes you just can't stress about that. The, the stories, the coverage, the attention will come with time as you're successful Or if you have an amazing story and you need help articulating it, you should figure out why you're not resonating. But I don't think that just because you don't have a story that everyone is loving, it means that you have a bad product, obviously. That's really helpful. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right, right? Like there is like evidence that shows that's the case and that's comforting, I'm sure. I wanted to talk about conversations and getting the most out of conversations. I'll just share a few examples of challenging conversations that I have seen makers in the community talk about, but even just our team talking about and something that I would like to do better at. Conversations like giving and sharing feedback. I know you've mentioned in some interviews before that you spent three years like fact-checking other people's articles and basically like giving your team notes on their articles, other journalists. So like curious to hear your insight on that. But any other kind of like conversations that you engage with, I'm sure sometimes you have to ask folks 
really challenging questions or you know broach topics that they'd probably prefer to avoid in the pursuit of the story. So I'm just wondering, how do you navigate challenging conversations and what tips can you share? The first tip I would give there is to try to establish a two-way sense of empathy. And what I mean by that is if you have to ask a really unpleasant or tough question of someone, be pretty transparent with them why it's necessary to ask that question. I think people are much more likely to answer truthfully if they understand why it's important for the other person to hear the answer. If I'm asking you out of the blue, I think you become defensive or you might freak out or you might think that I have some sort of secret agenda. For me, it's important to just explain to some level of detail, whatever is appropriate, why it's important that the person address that thing, whatever it is, or why an entire phone call might need to happen, even though it's not going to be a happy phone call. Then I think if they understand why I'm calling it's more likely that I'm going to understand what happened or what they're thinking or why we're having this discussion. So for example, if, if I'm writing about a company and it's had a controversy, I would say something like, you know, if I write about you and your company and we ignore this controversy, it will look like I was not doing my job. It will not answer this question for readers. They may walk away thinking, well, how could this really be the whole story about this company when they ignored this, you know, big issue? And so while it's something that maybe you can't talk about much, depending on the situation, our readers will expect me to ask about it if they're informed. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I only talked about the easy stuff and didn't talk about the hard stuff. So so that said, here's the hard stuff. And if you react badly to that, that tells you something, you know, and, 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 and it can be unfortunate, but I do think that usually people respond a lot better than, than you might think to that kind of like explanation. That's great. I hadn't even thought about that, but like giving the justification, giving the reason why. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Or like, let's say you have to ask, you have to ask a favor that you don't really feel comfortable asking, but you have no choice or you need to give someone bad news. I I do think that usually and and, and within reason, having the other person kind of like understand why this is happening, it's a lot easier for them to accept, right? (laughs) Like if you say, hey, I'm canceling on blah, 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 last minute, the person's probably pissed off. But if you're like, and here's why, and it's not just, you know, it's not excusing my disrespect for your time, but that this is just where I am. Like, I think it's a lot easier for people to move on and and reschedule and feel good about it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing, sharing that. So I wanted to ask you, you are in the world of creating news, but I am curious about where you consume your news. So yeah, what, what, what sources do you check and what are like, yeah, the media outlets that you enjoy? So I think you would find um, that a lot of journalists first follow and read specific people. You can kind of trust someone's work um, regardless of where they go and people in the media do tend to move around. So I would say there are some people who I just sort of instinctively think, oh, if they just wrote this, I want to save it and read it later. And, And I usually see that by following them on social media, usually LinkedIn or Twitter, but I'd say probably mostly Twitter then I think there are some outlets where I just kind of think, okay, well, I understand that this is part of a series or that they really care about a certain topic. And so I'm going to pay close attention. Like I would say Wired within the journalism community is known for like really loving technology and sort of how things work. And so when I see a Wired story about a company, I'm going to expect to maybe read more about the technology than in Bloomberg, where I'm expecting to read more about their finances and sort of like a more Wall Street perspective. For people who are not in the industry, that can be a little confusing, obviously. So I would say a good place to start is with, you know, when you really like an article that is shared by someone you like or trust on your team or on social media, maybe follow that particular person. 
and you would find that maybe you like all their work and then they surround themselves with other people that are good people that you want to work with too. And you kind of build these little clusters of sources, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a top tip. I also try to follow specific people who I just enjoy their insights, their perspectives, or, you know, they break stories on topics that uh, I care about. Um, So I think that's really cool to hear. And that's not all journalists, by the way. You know, people like Ben Thompson at Stratechery, you know, he's like more of an analyst or I, I don't know what we would call him, but, you know, he's not like a traditional journalist. But I do think that, you know, people like that who do have a regular voice would be totally included within that framework. Nice. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. That's cool. I was curious. This is, again, more of a personal question. I was having a conversation um, at a tech meetup the other day, and folks were talking about how there's almost like an overwhelming amount of content that's out there, all of it, which feels very compelling and interesting and piques our curiosity. I just wonder, is that a sentiment that you share or at least ever like empathize with? Or are you just like more, more, more? (laughs) Because this is your job. I do complain sometimes to my boss that I feel like I'm overwhelmed (laughs) (laughs) and the whole day just kind of rubbernecking the news and what other people are doing. And I can't keep up. I think it's a very natural (laughs) feeling. I try to in those moments, refocus on what I'm doing, what I can contribute. And if something is a big enough story that I need to think about it more it'll probably pop up a second or third time. And so at that point, maybe it's something I need to drill into. But I think that at some point, I just kind of cut myself off from the fire hose and kind of reinvest in what I'm really doing to be part of this conversation or advance the conversation in those moments. Awesome. I wanted to ask, you do a lot of work focused on yeah, cloud software. You talked about leading the cloud 100 list. Are there any future trends within that space that you're particularly excited about or conversely concerned about? Uh, one interesting thing is that we, I think we are still kind of figuring out the ideal workflow of the future. If you look mm-hmm. at sort of the era of desktop computing, sort of like peak original Microsoft suite, it's, you know, that was that was a long time ago. And ironically, Microsoft has, I think, done a good job of reinventing a lot of its products. But I still think we are kind of in this like primordial soup with a bunch of other new work tools. Um, For example, I saw a debate on Twitter this morning um, that I think was happening overnight about some of these kind of like database tools like Notion and Airtable and Coda. And I think, you know, you look at almost any thing that we do, take notes or share data with our team or build a workflow. And I think there's a ton of smart ideas out there that that it's not clear which one will be the most popular or the, the easiest one to use. And so... I kind of like that uncertainty. And I think in the cloud, like the future of work is still a very early, you know, sort of market for for startups to address. And then I think, you know, that then I think like in terms of a concern, every year we come out with a cloud 100 and I wish there were more diverse leaders on the list, more women CEOs, more CEOs from non-traditional, non-Silicon Valley backgrounds um, or companies that are based outside of the Valley. The Valley is great and I think has so much going for it. That's well documented. But I do think that it's nice to sort of slowly see some breakout companies come from Europe and not even London, but sort of Eastern Europe or from Asia, Australia, and see um, female or sort of unusual background CEOs breaking through. And, and, and while I do think we have a little progress, that's something that I, every year, kind of, I'm like, I wish I could report even more good news there. Yes, definitely. Um, we had Rashma Sahoni, the co-founder of SeedCamp, in an earlier episode of our podcast, I interviewed her and she was talking about like UI path and yeah, their founder grew up in like the USSR or something. And now he's built this like multi-billion dollar company, which is pretty awesome. So yeah, I agree with you on that. It would be cool to see more folks 
from yeah, like the less established backgrounds that we have, which yeah. is cool. Another of our Cloud 100 companies is Canva in Australia. The CEO grew up in Perth in Western Australia. That is not a place with a very <laughs> long tech uh, success list. And so hopefully entrepreneurs and especially, you know, female entrepreneurs could see someone like Melanie Perkins at Canva and feel inspired that you don't have to be sort of in that Bay Area world uh, to be successful. Oh, yeah. And Canva is an awesome product. It just like totally pimps out any slides I ever have to do. So it looks like I'm like a graphic designer whenever I have to like do public speaking with a deck. And it's just like, no, it's Canva. Um, Cool. Well, before I let you go being product hunt, of course, I have to ask you, what are the products that you love? It might be hardware you have at home, apps that are on your phone or any programs that you rely on to get through your working day. Please let us know what they are. So one thing I do to clear my head in the morning on the way to work, I take a train without cell reception, is I'm trying to learn another language. I'm going to Italy in a couple months, and I'm learning some basic conversational Italian. I use Duolingo, but there are other apps. I like this because I do encourage people to clear their heads by doing some sort of mental exercise that is not directly tied to what they work on. So it doesn't have to be a language, but I really recommend you, you know, people find some way to just kind of get their mind pumping in the morning. And that's what I personally do. Then I think I'm, I'm testing out a couple of note apps. A lot of people talk about Bear. There are a few others mm. there, but I would encourage listeners, um, if you really love a note app, I'm in the market for something that is just really easy to take notes on the fly and then and then sync them and search them in the future. Because I don't know about you, but I find myself still going back into the Apple Notes app. And I know Same. I, do that. I think Jack Dorsey posts like Twitter company notices from notes. And uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy <laughs> that we're all still using that. And then I'd say like a fun app that I um, have been playing a lot with is an app from a new startup called Kanga. If any people are into curious about sort of the future of streaming, you know, like you use Twitch or Discord, and you're curious about sort of what happens next with people building communities around streaming and gaming, this app basically like tells you when people are logged on and streaming and helps like a little community form around when they're doing it. And so that's been handy for me. And I've been playing with that one too. Oh, wow. Okay, awesome. I am definitely going to check it out. So for folks who want to find out where you are, find out more about what you do, what's the best way for them to find you? The easiest way for someone to reach me right now is probably on Twitter. And my handle is at Alex R. Conrad with a K. If you type in Alex R. or Alex Forbes, you'll probably find me pretty fast. I love to talk to people there as long as it's a constructive conversation. (laughs) (laughs) No trolling. (laughs) Otherwise, um, you know, if you want to find my articles, if you just like Google Alex Forbes or Alex Conrad, you know, you'll find my author page where you'll see articles like my Zoom story or my cover story on Andreessen Horowitz from earlier this year. Some of my favorite work. If you're not sure where to start, of course, just tweet at me and I'll tell you my favorite articles. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Wow, Alex, thank you so much for giving us your time today. It's been really fun chatting with you. Um, So yes, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.